so many young people uh, are getting out of our education system and they don't have the skills that they promised they don't have the perspective and the aspirations that allow them to be engaged and productive members of society and our education systems have not adapted to an evolving uh you know economy you know and technological landscape this season provides a wealth of information you get to know the expertise behind the Shasha Network. On today's episode, we have our very own CEO of the Shasha Network itself, Farai Ndrama. A decade ago, he discovered his love for education and technology. And after working and living in several countries, of which I'm going to list down, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Kenya, Mauritius, Uganda, Rwanda, and the UK, you know, I don't think his portfolio is... It stops there, but you know, we move. <laughs> he was convinced that there's more to education than reading and writing. A good education inspires us to aspire for more and imagine limitless futures that we can create, regardless of where we come from. He founded the Shasha Network, an online platform equipping the next generation with the soft skills and positive mindset to unlock their fullest potential and ultimately uplift their communities. Today we discuss how Shasha Network came about, its future, what the climate is like in the educational space, Shasha's future, and why we should forge a path of excellence for future generations. Shasha Voices welcomes you. Welcome, Farai Mjoma. Farai, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, Mr. CEO, to being with us today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Savannah. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you today. Right, great. So, you know, you're not, you're obviously not new to this, right? Uh, but for the sake of the audience, I have the privilege of knowing you for a while and interacting uh, with you even closer on this podcast scenario. And, you know, we have one key question to help break the ice. And for the time I've known you, you've always loved to read. What um, nonfiction book concept have you applied recently? Interesting. Yeah. So I've been reading this book called Atlas of AI. And Atlas of AI was written by Kate Crawford. She's one of the top AI thinkers. And we've just been living at a time where AI and technology and machine learning and all these things have been kind of like the hot topics. And in Atlas of AI, you know, she talks about this idea that the this artificial intelligence revolution is more than just about the technology. It is social it is institutional it is capital it is resource um it is it is you know it is more than just technology mm. and i've sort of like been empowering myself as well to expose myself to as much generative ai uh tools out there um but also you know expose myself to chat gpt which has been very you know prominent and i've been i've been you know applying it to how i do work how i plan my to-do lists how i you know conceptualize uh, I, I analyze and 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 uh, summarize big pieces of text that I put in for the work that I do with Shasha yeah so just starting to put my to dip my foot in the pool of AI and that entire door was opened by Atlas of AI so yeah that's that's what I've been doing lately I haven't been putting any reading um, this year, and I'm so ashamed to say it, but, you know, at some point I'll pick it up, you know, once the project sort of just dumped down a bit and I'm sort of just able to do a bit more self-love for myself. So, 
know, there's a season for everything. I think, you know, we, we really underestimate just the busyness of adult life and getting the time. I think most of my friends that read do that when they're commuting mostly because they're just so busy. They don't have the time. And there's a statistics, there's a a stat that says, you know, in America, the, you know, the average person who is 40 years and above has only read two books since graduating from university or college. (laughs) So that is crazy. It's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's so reading can be an extreme sport, but I think, you know, if you, put in a page or two every single day and they become more and more, you'll get there. Yeah, I think at some point I put in like um, a 10-minute rule, a 10-minute rule whereby I would wake up in the morning, do my morning routine and then put in like 10 minutes of like reading. It doesn't matter where I stop, but if 10 minutes are up, at least I've put some work in into like sort of just engaging my brain in a more um, active manner. So yeah, yeah, with time, with time, everything has a season. (laughs) So um, today we're going to be talking about unlocking Africa's educational potential. So we do have to ask, what does the education landscape look like right now and why should we care? Thank you so much, Savannah, for asking this question. I have been in education my entire life. I grew up in a family of educators. Um, Beyond being a student in the classroom, I have worked in education since 2014. And that was specifically... uh, at least in Zimbabwe, some of the early days of digital learning. And I did not know for myself, you know, that what we were doing was ed tech uh, until someone told told us that. Um, and as I reflect back to that time and where we are now, I think we're really at an interesting space where the education landscape, at least as you look at it from the traditional, you know, early, you know, pre-school education to, mm-hmm. to primary school, elementary school, high school type, um, you know, uh, tertiary education, there are a lot of new definitions and ancillary services that are starting to mushroom uh, on top of this pre-existing pipeline of talent all the way to employment, which is, you know, if you're to go to many African countries, the main education providers were the government as well as missionary school, right. uh, which is run by the church and over the past couple of years, we've seen this big growth in private schools. Uh, and private means a lot of things now. Uh, before it was private school would be probably your um, post-colonial white school, in in quotes, or your very international schools. But private school now also means very, you know, low-income, uh, low uh, high-quality experiences, but they're private for learners that have not gotten a good experience in the public system, but now are being provided with an alternative private education, but they're not paying $5,000, they're paying maybe $50, and that is also private school. We're also seeing an emergence of a gap year education landscape, and this is more has been more for the, the privileged uh, group of students, but... There's a big realization that, you know, pre-university education is is very important because young people are actually coming out of high school with very limited context of what the world looks like. Mm. Um, And and, and on the tertiary education side, I think there's a lot of new challenger programs or universities where, you know, people are not going to your traditional universities, to the University of Zimbabwe, to Stellenbosch University. People are starting to go to new fired and 
cool universities that are either being run remotely or that have a very big emphasis on technology and 21st century skills. So all these things are happening and it continues to be a booming landscape. You know, we also have ad tech and digital learning that is happening for remote degrees, but also a lot of international uh, universities that are operating in Africa as as as, as, as a new breed of, of organization. So, so much is happening in the talent landscape. And the one that I'm particularly passionate about is the pre-university landscape. I think there's so much exciting opportunity there. Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, with that said, you know, you've looked at the education landscape in a broad perspective and you've also narrowed it down to the tertiary education and pre-tertiary. So why exactly should we care about, you know, what the landscape looks like, how it's evolving, or even just take an interest in it? I think, you know, education is one of those industries, unlike banking, right, or other things, which really sometimes gets away with a lot of complacency, mm-hmm. um, specifically because all of us are products of the education system. Yeah. It is like the mother of everyone. And no one wants to be the first one to criticize their mother, right? Like right. it produces all of us. <laughs> That's a good analogy. <laughs> You know, right. Um, the only other institution that is also like that is probably the church, right? And and I think because of that complacency, we are starting to get to a point where we have a big realization that so many young people uh, are getting out of our education system and they don't have the skills that they promised. They don't have the perspective and the aspirations that allow them to be engaged and productive members of society. And our education systems have not adapted to an evolving, uh, you know, economy you know, and technological landscape. So the investment that we distribute towards education from the day you go to school, Mm -hmm. right, from your first day at school, uh, needs to be able to pay off 15, 16 years down the line. And the conversation that we're not having is that the the out-of-school, the largest proportion of the world's out-of-school youth are in Africa. And we kind of have... And we've kind of accepted that this is our reality. And so where do all these young people end up, right? right. And we, we did in a, a research at Shasha to sort of map the landscape and, and, and know, okay, when are people transitioning to work? Because ultimately, you know, after you go to school, you hope to be engaged in some form of economic activity that leads to, lively, to an improved livelihood, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we're seeing a lot of graduates on the street selling airtime, and avocados because they <laughs> yeah. they they spent four years at a top university in their countries but they they cannot get a good job right. right so or they cannot create a job for themselves either right that is sustainable enough for them so this is these are some of the reasons why we should care uh because everyone is going to have kids one day or some those that want to have kids but they're also going to have to hire people so if you're a parent you need to be concerned that your child gets the best education yeah. Um, if you're an employer, I need to be concerned because you want to make sure that people coming out of the education system have the skills to provide to your economy. Yeah. If you're a government, you need to be able to make sure that the people in your country stay in your country and are employable. Because when a lot of Africans leave to go to the UK, to the US, guess who footed the bill for their education? Local government, exactly. right? But that is being exploited abroad. So this is why we need to care so much and sort of like be very intentional about fixing the education landscape and, and, and problem. Right. So just more or less just bringing it back home and making it more continent-centric rather than taking those skills and those brains rather <laughs> outside. I, I think, you know, it is 
I'm not the kind of person that has been very, you know, adamant about, oh, no, there's brain drain. People shouldn't leave. You know, I think mm -hmm. these are some of the laws of nature. Talent will go where it faces less resistance. Yeah. Talent will go where it is rewarded the, 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 the most. And I, I think there's a big opportunity that also exists when governments invest in their talent and are able to keep them with them. Uh, I think, you know, the benefit of people leaving the country is that some of the biggest inflow of resource and funds in Africa has been remittances by the African diaspora. Yeah. Um, but we are also living in a, in a world where remote working is now a possibility. So you can still be in Kenya and work for a German company or for a, a New York-based company and extract that global value to your uh, area of locality. Yeah. But are we actually churning out a lot of those quality of talent, I don't think we are we are at that point yet. Yeah. So for for a, for a government that is looking to get the most out of the human capital dividend, we we need to focus on education. So earlier you gave the analogy of nobody wants to be the first to criticize their mother, right? You personally yeah. bit the bullet and actually criticized your mom, and you're very harsh about it and said <laughs> she is not giving me um, education on the soft skills that I need to, you know, sort of just sell myself um, out there mm. to build my career. How can I, you know, sort of get potential universities to look at me or look my way? So, what would you say drew you to starting? this network, Shasha <laughs> I think, you know, this analogy of education being the mother, yeah. I think, like, and this analogy can really go so well, it can be so bad, so we hope it, it keeps taking us to more deeper stuff, and I love this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think if you look at, a, if you look at a mother and the child's relationship is, when the child doesn't know what to do, they're going to say, oh, mommy, mommy, your mama, like, uh, what do I do today? And the mother has an answer, yeah. or can fix the problem. Yeah. But our relationship with education, or the education system, that there are actually no answers. We've been crying for so long, and there's been no answer. And there's, and, and I think that's where you start to critique. I think I'll give you a bit of context on my own journey and my story. So I was born and raised in Zimbabwe. Okay. My mom was a lecturer. Okay. And working at the local polytechnic, teaching business studies and secretarial studies. And my dad was an accountant. So a family that was very big on education. And the 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 uniqueness and sort of like the how solid the foundations of education were in the country were based on the fact that, you know, we actually had an economy that was working. Mm. In every country that has a broken down economy, we'll start to realize that it impacts all other different types of factors. And, and I think, you know, when it happened, inflation in 2009, I had to sort of drop out of school because my parents couldn't be able to afford to keep me in school. Uh, for context's sake, you know, Zimbabwe had the highest inflationary uh, inflation record. So our currency lost all the value. You know, you had to go on the black market. or in the, So you usually go buy your Forex in a bank. Right. But you'd go under a tree and someone would have a bag, a bag of US dollars and you'd have to take all these Zimbabwean dollars and buy, you know, you probably say, oh, I'll give you one billion and then you give me $10. Right. And then you take that $10, you go to someone else under another tree and say, can you give me bread and fuel? So most educators left the education system and they went to do some of these jobs or left to go to better countries because they wanted to make a living. Yeah. And it's people started to ask themselves, why is it important that I stay in school when I know that someone without a degree who is hustling on the street and exchanging dollars is making more money than me, right? right. <laughs> um, what What is the importance of staying in school beyond getting the job? And I think the, the origin of the process of enlightenment and the self, I really call to the education process that we have. But I think 
over time, those of industrialization and everything, we've sort of like removed that purpose and identity and value-based learning from this process of education, which is really cool to also, you know, some of these things that we later on do in our lives. Yeah. So, you know, I drop out of school and I have to go and sell chickens. Okay. And my mom says, you know, you're going to go and cycle on the street. We're going to give you 12 chickens. We hope you sell them and all the best. And two reactions for me are like, number one, this is not my job. Why am I doing this? And I'm 12 at, the, at that age. Yeah. But two, I'm like, I'm so embarrassed. Like, why should I be selling chickens? Yeah, you like, if you're like going to an African market. You, huh? <laughs> you know, you know, but I think that is one of the best things that ever happened to me because it, it introduced me to the reality of life. Right. It has changed yeah. overnight. Wow. That I, I didn't know that, actually. I didn't know that about you. I know, you know, you do. So, literally, if you have the the same person in that Kibando area, they are selling the same type of chicken, right. same white broiler chicken, or if it's a layer, it's brown, right? right? Yeah. There is no differentiating factor about your chicken besides weight. Exactly. <laughs> so, what makes you stand out, right? <laughs> what makes you what makes your chicken special? You're not gonna go sell purple chicken, right? You, you're gonna have to invest. Either you shout loudly, or you just have more charisma to attract people. And people use all sorts of strategies. People are playing music. People are doing that. You know, people are doing tricks to attract people. And I, I was just there holding my bicycle, supporting it with my body. And people came to the youngest person at the market, and then they bought from me. That was my only differentiating factor. That people probably like, oh, let's go buy from this kid. Yeah. But it sparked something in me because I was like, oh my God, like now I can trade money and chicken. And Probably some women would come and buy three chickens at once. Yeah. And then and then I would recognize them and be like, wow, this, she's buying chickens now? Four chickens, where? And I'll and ask them like, man, where, where are you eating all this chicken? Because clearly you're not going to be eating four chickens every single day. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I run a canteen, so I cook. And then I was like, wait a minute. So if I brought you those chickens and I don't have to stand at the market, would you be able to pay me after people buy food on lunchtime during lunchtime he's like yeah but can i go talk to my mom they're like yeah you can go talk to your mom so i'll go talk to my mom be like this lady runs the canteen can we go give them chicken without them paying us anything up front and then we'll collect the money and she'll be like yeah sure do that so started moving out so much more chicken and it it, it taught me a lot about humility it taught me a lot about you know kindness and building relationships mm-hmm. and you know building networks and you know all those kind of things which i wasn't being taught in school right so by the time i went back to school I realized that, oh my God, there's a big world out there. But I was also very lucky to have made it back to school. Because not many people had actually made it back to school. And guess what? That is actually a statistic. The first, some of the early career transitions from school to work in Africa mm-hmm. happened as soon as the age of 12. Yeah. And I was one of those statistics. I never knew that. I only started knowing this a few years ago, right? So many people would have left, started doing all these odd jobs, gotten into agriculture, then become seasonal, go to gold panning, or all these things that happen you know so by the time i got back into school and everything everything had changed you know i was more focused you know in my fa- in my final year of high school of, of, pri- of, of primary school you know i i got 14 out of the 16 prizes that way for my entire stream oh wow look at you <laughs> because you know i was just working really hard yeah. um and my parents had to make a sacrifice and say hey this this child is working really hard we're gonna have to sell part of our land and take it to school yeah. again that's a massive sacrifice to go to school and the question that i'm asking myself is to what end 
right? Because mm-hmm. you start to feel, do I need to repay my parents for all these sacrifices that they're making? Right. For yeah. me to get this intangible experience called education and the and grades, right? Yeah. Um. So I go to to a Catholic old boys school, and you know, it's very academic focus. It's started by the Marist brothers. You know, a group of of uh, Catholic brothers from France that have literally created hundreds of schools across the world. And one of the alumni from my high school had gotten um, a scholarship to study at MIT. Mm-hmm. And he had gone to study at MIT and he was killing it at MIT. This guy had never done computer science in his life, mm-hmm. but he went to MIT and he did software engineering. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. In America, they allow you to do subjects that you never studied in high school. <laughs> how is that How is that possible? Yeah. And I started learning about this thing called liberal arts and, you know, doing more majors and minors and i'm like so why is it that in africa you just finish high school if you've done divinity history and literature that is what you're con- you're confined to after you graduate yeah. right yeah so if you did history and literature you can't do computer science you your, your degree options have to be within that and if you don't go for law you're gonna do religious studies or you're gonna do teaching or, and, and i'm just like why are we you know unable to achieve all these other things yeah. So they decided to do a documentary on him mm-hmm. in France. And this guy got a job off at Oracle and was doing study abroad in Hong Kong, etc. Yeah. Someone that I knew, someone that walked and lived in the same spaces that I was now occupying. Mm-hmm. And he came back and told us about our technology and entrepreneurship were changing the world. And I was sitting there in one hand thinking, success for me is going to look like finishing this, getting a job and being able to buy more land, to have more chickens, <laughs> sell chickens for my family. Yeah. That was what success looked like. Yeah. And on this end, someone's talking about Oracle and software and Harvard and Boston and MIT and Silicon Valley, right? And I'm okay. like, why am I not dreaming about these things too? I can also do it. Like, if you came here, I can also do it. Mm-hmm. And my teachers also didn't know about these things. So I realized that we are in a cycle where we just continue to do the things that we do because that's the only thing that we've ever known. Right. And there's so many people with so much potential that education keeps insulated from the possibilities of their potential. And the problem becomes even deeper when you're young woman or you're a black young man or anything you're just, just told oh no girls in this community don't do physics they don't do medicine right. they, they're just nurses not to say there's anything bad about being nurses but there are all these stereotypes that even someone that wants to be a doctor will be told oh you can't be a doctor because actually women can only be nurses right? yeah so there's like that societal notion that everybody has a role or specific genders or certain ages have a particular role to play yeah. in society and you should just stick to that box stick to that box right and it's, it can be socio-economical it can be gender focused it can be even you know sect specific certain people from certain sects of society mm. they're shoemakers or these ones they're the agriculture people and i'm like guys we're in the 21st century <laughs> we can be ux designers we can be software engineers we can be you know ai engineers we can be lawyers we can be secular economy experts why are we wasting all this potential because we, they're not exposed? And the number one reinforcer of those stereotypes is the education system. Yeah. So how do we start to rethink it, right? Especially in Africa, where most of our education systems are inherited from post-colonial areas, yeah. where the mandate was not to teach people to be enlightened and to be critical thinkers, but people to just learn to read and write mm-hmm. and receive instruction in a factory or on a farm or something. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Right? 
so these were all questions that were coming to my mind. Right. And, 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 and I think now, based off of your question, I think with this context, the work that we're doing at Shasha was a built up of these experiences that I'd had, you know, after working on Shasha Network. And again, the early, the early days of Shasha were simply about, you know, getting PDF content, typing notes and getting students to download yeah. these notes. Yeah. But then the thing is, you're still reinforcing the same system that created this entire problem. So we had to make a very tough decision and think critically about what's the kind of impact that we want to have in the future. What kind of education is actually going to matter, right? Yeah. Um, because even the people that had access to opportunities were very limited. There's a reason why a lot of private school students privileged private school students across Africa are the ones that get scholarships to study abroad. Have you ever asked yourself that question, right? No, actually, I've, I've, never had, I've never had to ask myself that question, actually. I've never thought of it from that perspective. But yeah, continue. Yeah. It's because, you know, they go to the schools where they do hockey, water polo. They go for study abroads and they do the volunteer experiences. Tell me which public school is doing that for their students. Uh, very few if none <laughs> exactly and then when we apply for global opportunities to go to top schools those are the things that they're looking for right. and they have scholarships for underserved students mm. but just because these young people are coming from africa they're underserved but no one really looks at like you know which school did they go to what context do they live in maybe they come from a family where the father is a you know a director at a big telecommunications company or a you know oil and gas company yeah. the students that actually are qualified for these opportunities never actually get to apply for them because to them it seems too far out of reach right. but universities have a diversity quota so they need to hire someone from Africa they need to recruit someone from Africa right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how do we get more young people to start showing up mm-hmm. and to start attempting to, to apply themselves in these opportunities and this is not something that we are researching or something that is we live these lives yeah it's real life right? Right now, and this yeah. is some of the most frustrating things it's, it's real life like this is and sometimes you know you, you speak to people and they're like but what's the data like how do you know this and I'm like this is literally our lives yeah i see it every this is day where we're coming from i hear it every day this. i read about I it, it every, every day. day i read it every day <laughs> no we are not conceptualizing these brains we see it and, and and i think what makes us really passionate is being able to see these young people that walk into our i mean we don't have a physical door we, all of this is online that yeah. come into our co- own or virtual community mm-hmm. with no idea of what they want to do but they have this youthful energy and talent and you ask them, what do you want to do with your life? And we get 17 to 18 year olds saying, oh my God, I've never even been asked in my entire life what my values are, what my interests are, right. what my personality strengths are. Mm-hmm. I've never been asked that. But guess what? They've been reminded of how not good they are, why they're not getting an A, yeah. why they are so bad as a B student, right? And that does a lot on people's self-esteem and confidence over a long period of time. And that's the system that we created. Right. And I'm like, but you're good, you're good at video making. You're good at storytelling, but you will never get a grade for that. How do you then communicate that? Right. And and I think what also got me really frustrated is at a certain point, you know, after this MIT guy had come, um, I really wanted to go and study in the US. I wanted to go to study in America. It was not all the dream I was American. <laughs> which is another story. <laughs> but I went to the embassy and I had eight A's, two B's, and three C's. Right. I'd done 18 all-level subjects. 
IGCSE. And when I went to the embassy, the person looked at my grades and said, eight A's, two B's, and three C's. Why don't you get straight A's? Do you know that this program is for superstars? Oh. And clearly, you don't meet the definition of being a superstar. And that was it. And I had to walk with shame out of the US embassy, knowing that my chances of getting a scholarship were gone. My school did not have a college guidance program. I never knew what SAT programs looked like. All these things were for a few number of students that would be handpicked based off of whatever metrics. Yeah. to proceed so it's so hard seeing all this potential go to waste mm. because we've just not created the platforms for these young people to express themselves but more importantly we have not provided them with the internal capabilities and skills to be able to achieve their goal right and right. To, to navigate this transition i i was fortunate enough to have a lot of mentors and people that have believed in me over time um and this thing happened 10 years ago right but i'll tell you something interesting which is 10 years later i went to the u.s for the first time and I was speaking at Harvard on a talent development panel. Look at you, superstar. <laughs> I, and I'm not saying this to break, but I'm saying yeah. between year one and year 10, mm-hmm. so many things could have happened to my journey and my confidence. Absolutely, yeah. And I would have never made it to the other side of the of the light. How many people get turned away because they don't have the right grades? How many young people get asked to just pick a subject because they have to go into university and they go halfway through university and they're told they can't switch their program? Yeah. So I know I'm talking about all the frustration and maybe some people connected them, some people won't. Yeah. <laughs> but it's Shasha with what we've done with the early career program is we want to create a an experience with young people with the self-leadership skills and the ability to build social capital and to immerse them in a social capital network that is beneficial to their career growth, but also teach them how to manage those relationships, but also expose them to a wider spectrum of career opportunities and train them on how to think about how they need to think about opportunities beyond the societal expectation of becoming a doctor, lawyer, engineer. But after they've realized what they really want, how to communicate that to people so that they can help them and move the lead for them and then brand themselves in ways that they can be able to open up doors that would never have been opened up to them, maybe because they're not presenting themselves the right way or they're not using the the language of opportunity. So we started off with 30 students and now we've done the work with over a thousand students. Um, Our goal is to get to 10,000 students by end of this year, right? right? So this is the kind of work that we're trying to do. And we are not saying... We want to replace education. We're saying we are going to be adjacent to the learning process and give these skills to young people on top of what they're already being taught in school. You know, it's uh, from what I'm getting from this, it's more or less like the makeup for education, just amplifying or enhancing how it looks and the experience that you get out yeah. of it. Yeah. We, 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 we call ourselves a talent ignition engine. Right. And our goal is just to light the fire. So you can't, education puts all this pile of wood on top of you, all this raw knowledge. Mm-hmm. Our goal is just to put the fire so that we can illuminate your potential. And then you go out into the world. Yeah. So, you know, you've touched a bit on Africa's educational potential. But for the sake of the audience and those who might not have, like, you know, put things together with the previous question as to why you started Chasha. What does the educational, Africa's educational potential mean to you? How does it look like? And why do you consider yourself, and dare I say, a thought leader in this space? I, I, I don't consider myself a thought leader, okay. right? I consider, I consider myself a, a, a learner, a student of the system. Mm, okay. And I, I just tend to be obsessed. I think most of the people that know me, once I like something, I get super obsessed with it. Like, I want to understand it to this attitude. Yes. But I think the education potential for Africa is the people, the people who exist in our economies, mm-hmm. uh, the talent, the diverse talent that they offer, right? Mm-hmm. 
Right. And, and I'm not just talking about doctors and engineers. I'm talking about artists. I'm talking about people that do sculpturing, people that do storytelling. Your banner boys. How many more banner boys are in Africa that we've not discovered yet? So many. <laughs> right? So many, right? Um. So there's all this technology. There's all this technology that exists for us today to be able to tap into that talent, expose that talent, and upscale it. Um, for context sake, only 50 million students are in high high school education in Africa, in secondary school education in Africa. Of those 50 million, and again, with a billion people, right? Mm -hmm. But of those billion people and the over 600,000 school, and that's a capacity issue, that's an access issue. But of those 50 million, mm -hmm. only 12% go to university. So 88% fail to transition. Or, and the question that, and all, all of us, because we are the ones that are in the dialogue, who have gotten the education, the undergrads, the master's degrees, all this kind of thing. Sometimes I think we tend to focus so much on rethinking higher education and all these things, which again needs to be fixed, right? Right. But I think we need to come back to the source. Guess what? If our people are not fed, brain development is going to be very poor. Yeah. <laughs> and if brain development is poor, you can't put any education process on top of, of that. Right. That is why there's also a very big opportunity in any childhood education. And that goes hand in hand with nutrition. But where are we going to have the nutrition when we don't even own the factors of production to our own um, skill sets? You know, we don't we don't have the agriculture skill sets. Like ask, I mean, if you go go anyway, I bet this, and ask students who are interested in doing agriculture after graduating to raise their hands. You probably see a few hands. No one wants to go into agriculture because it's unsexy. Right? Yeah, yeah. But. Our biggest competitive advantage in Africa is arable land and climate. Right. And no one wants to be in agriculture. And that for me is really fun. Yeah. So I think we really need to be innovative around how we think about these things. So the potential is definitely there and it's there in abundance. It's just very untapped. It's untapped, but I also think there's, you know, there's something about what I'm learning in terms of like systems thinking. Okay. Something is only as sexy as the emphasis that is put on it. The reason why everyone wants to be a programmer now is because a lot of big tech companies are putting money there. Even investors are putting money in tech right. and lots of capital is going. So lots of organizations, institutions are training people for tech. Yeah, because right now being a tech bro is something Most, big. Um, it's something big. But I mean, all those people that you're programming for need money. They need, they, they need food. We've got hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of fintech companies. And I'm like, we need milling businesses just to mill maize meal. Right. <laughs> right. It's still a big challenge finding a milling business in Africa. Yeah. Right. And but it's not sexy. It's not sexy. If I'm flying in from New York or London or wherever and going into Africa, I'm gonna be like, okay, we'll leapfrog. I'm like, we can leapfrog all these things, but we cannot leapfrog certain aspects of livelihoods. Right. So I know you know we're we're getting out of of the rails a bit about education, but all these things impact. Yeah. And I think if we're a bit more intentional about localized approaches to learning and competitive advantages, I think we could optimize our skill sets for that. And that's super insightful. I don't know if the audience would feel the depth in which you've gone into and sort of just seen what or the reality of the situation, you know? So maybe a follow-up question from that would be, how do we curb this or how do we sort of just address this to make it a bit more sustainable, a bit more sexy, as you mentioned, um, in order for people to sort of just realize mm. like, hey, these are the industries <laughs> that 
a lot of people don't want to get into, but there's money here, there's potential to build your economy and there's potential to sort of just make it better for yourselves and not for, not only for you, but for the people around you and even in a broader context from that point. Look, I, I think one of the things that I really want to make straight is, you know, I, I'm not against tech. I mean, our entire model is built around technology. Right. We need people with technology. Yeah. Um, but technology should not be the end goal. It should be the tool that we need to apply. Yes. yes. Towards a particular problem, right? We still need people building good products. We still need people building, uh, working on the ground and doing the hard work to build the infrastructure. Uh, that still needs to happen. All the money needs to happen in all these key areas. Um, and we've got the resources to do that. I think there's a mindset challenge. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, one of the things that we're also looking at, specifically from a philanthropic standpoint, is that I think for the longest we've identified identified physical and tangible poverty so people don't have food people don't have classes people don't have you know clothes and we give to those kind of causes but i think as we go into this next decade or so my challenge you know to philanthropy as well and people that are investing in education is let's think about the systematic issues let's think about the intangible poverty let's think about you know people do this poverty of the mind poverty of the mind guess what it's a thing right (laughs) Um, this inability for young people that even go through all these fancy classrooms that were built for them, for them to actually not have a sense of identity and a sense of purpose and a sense of values to be able to then go out into the world and be world-class at whatever they do. I think we need to accept that there's more to what we, we, we provide to a young person in Africa between beyond, oh, they've got a uniform and they've got classrooms too. What What's actually the content of what they're being taught? How is this going to be a lifelong learning experience for them? Yeah. So starting to think about all these aspects uh, and, and, and work, working with different stakeholders, right? I think, you know, they should not be, there, sh- there should be an interconnectedness throughout the entire value chain, right? From uh, early childhood development to, you know, to, 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 to teaching, to, to, to teach attending colleges, to schools, to you know university to employers to some emerging portfolio based career paths you know people are becoming youtubers people are becoming this and that yeah. how how do we how do we keep it fresh and alive and and i think the biggest challenge with that is for most of our governments as well on the continent is that there's no continuity of agenda so once there are elections and there's new um people in power and personalities yeah. in ministry yes there's we, we are rebooting the education system all the time so we are actually never making progress and sticking to a philosophy and i I think we cannot take those bets anymore we cannot continue to you know stall the developmental process and and human capital development agenda for for young people in africa by continuously switching the plug on and off like if you know like if you look at countries and i think you know one one thing that i'm learning as well is you know this thing about the resource curse and i'm going to talk a bit about education a bit about africa is when you've got resources in a country and you look at gold you look at land you look at all these diamonds right? right it's way easier to make money from those things but economies that have they had their backs against the wall that have had a limited supply of resources and they can only look in their bag and what they see is people they've invested all their energy in the one resource that everyone overlooks which is people Right. Right. So I think in Africa, you know, and, and if 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 we were to start to focus a little bit more on the people side, we would unlock so many ideas. Imagine like a country like Nigeria with hundreds of millions of people. Imagine if all of them had their ideas unlocked. You know, with someone with the solution to cancer walking around in Africa somewhere in the savannah or in, in Nairobi, 
But we will never get access to that because we, we, we have not cared enough to create opportunities, right? right, right. Sustainability and climate change and energy. There's a kid somewhere. I can bet this. There's a kid somewhere in some county in, 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 in Zambia who has that idea. But guess what? We will never know. So this is what we forego. We forego brilliant ideas when you don't invest in people. Damn, Farai. That was... <laughs> A lot of gems that we have to pick out of this. I mean, I'm really enjoying the session, but, you know, we have to cut it short at some point. Um, obviously, we could, you know, push this conversation to a later date, maybe have even a second edition of the CEO um, onto the podcast. But um, to end our podcast today, what would be one piece of advice that you'd give to our listeners who are entrepreneurs or aspiring to be? What space or what headspace um, do you think they should be in in order for them to sort of just have the sort of tangible metrics of success? I wouldn't say this is advice, mm -hmm. but it's something that I've observed. And you know, nowadays I've become very conscious of giving advice because what might be advice to me is not the same advice to many people. Right. It may be, I'll look back 25 years from and most of the thesis and philosophy that I've had in my brain have been tested for me to actually give advice. But I think what I've observed is that the only way we're going to be able to work together and create impact and continue to scale in a deeply innovative and responsive manner in terms of creating interscalar models. So deeply indigenous and locally rooted innovations that are deeply rooted as well in the global context and global economy. These interscaled models rely mostly on listening. Listening. I will not stress enough. If you're an entrepreneur, listen to your customer. If you're an investor, listen to your entrepreneurs. If you're a government, listen to your people. If you're a teacher, listen to your student. If you're a parent, listen to your kids. Like, the world would just become a better place if we listened. But everyone is busy trying to make a statement. Everyone is busy trying to enforce their ideas, their values, trying to discredit people's experiences, trying to you know, come up with an agenda in the name of impact. But all that could change if we listen. And the people that are listening will create more impact, they'll have a higher return on investment, and they'll have a better legacy because they listened. It's painful for, for me specifically because I think working in education and working in Africa, you know, the moment you mention Africa, by default, it becomes a development agenda, right? You right. you start to work in development, right? Yeah. And we, of course, as Shasha, we see also as a, as a development partner as well. But there's so much more that could be done with the limited resources that we have, which most of it is lost in the air because we do not listen to each other. So I think my take is for people to reflect on, are we listening enough? And if we've listened, what are we doing about it? Oh, I hear that. I hear that. Yeah, that's my take. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. So <laughs> how can the people listening get involved with Shasha Network? So... With quite some exciting opportunities coming up, um, we are based here in Edinburgh as a UK nonprofit, but most of our work is across the continent. We have scholars from 19 different countries, but we've recently become a bit more intentional in our scaled approach in country in Zimbabwe, Zambia, Kenya, and Ghana. And we're always looking for donors to support our work and continue to scale the impact that we have and reach more young people uh, but we're also looking for talent you know people that can you know work with us or partner with us or volunteer to you know optimize on our reach on the products that we're offering um, and, and we also just need champions we need people that can share the story with other 
you know, members of their communities that could be potential partners and stakeholders in the mission that we are we are creating, which is to empower the next generation with the soft skills and personal development that they require to achieve their fullest potential. Great. So if the audience didn't know, now they know. Thank you so much, Mariah, for taking yeah. the time out, for being a part of this podcast. I mean, it is your brainchild as well. And I'm happy and super honored to be a part of this journey as well. Um, yeah, hopefully we can pick up this conversation on a later date and sort of just um, even like prompt to, you know, black excellence. Because I remember there's a conversation we were to have around <laughs> that. So Yeah, no, thank thank you so much for making time. And it's, it's always a great pleasure and honor to have conversations with you. I think, you know, our first podcast was probably four years ago. I remember just saying, I hope one day I get to work with Savannah in some form of capacity. And I remember you were doing podcasts, you know, with another organization. And I was like, hopefully she comes and starts doing podcasts for Shash. And we are here four years later. So thank you so much for for continuing to do what you do with so much more excellence and just continuing to grow. So thank you for gifting us with your talents. Thank you so much for your kind words. <laughs> Fortunately, he's agreed to pick up this conversation another time and we're going to be hinting at black excellence. So I hope you're going to be excited about that. So do send in your questions as need be. As you've heard, we've highlighted how the educational climate looks like at the moment and the things that we can do to sort of engage um, with the space that we're looking into developing for the continent. And who knew that Ray had literal street smarts? Who knew? Who knew? I hope you also got the key things that make the ideal entrepreneur. If anything, the key is to listen and always be a learner. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us on Spotify for exclusive access to the wealth of wisdom we have in store for you this season. Shasha Voices, unlocking the next generation's fullest potential. See you next episode. Thank you.